0: topic today might seem sort of odd here for the first split sermon today, but I feel it's important. That's part of why I've been motivated to talk about this topic for a while. I want to start off with a quote. It's a quote by Samuel Butler. Uh, he was a novelist and in the Society of Actuaries, I used to be an actuary, which is a uh, essentially a mathematician who does a lot of calculations and projections and such for insurance companies. But the good guys, we like to think we're, we're the good guys. Uh, in fact, I had the pleasure of telling the company once that their premiums were too high uh, because based on our projections, they were not giving the customer uh, enough value. So you don't get to do that all the time. Tell your boss they need to lower their prices. So you're welcome. But anyway, so it's a, it's a real nerdy job, but I really enjoyed it. And there was a quote that the society of actuaries had on their webpage for a long time. I'm not sure if it's still there. It feels like that really was another life ago, but the quote was this life is the art of drawing sufficient conclusions from insufficient premises. That is, you have to draw conclusions. You have to make choices about what to eat, what to do, what to say, how to live. And you're never going to have enough data, at least not as much as you truly might feel you need uh, to know for sure. And I was an actuary. We're always hungering for more data. I remember when I was having to develop uh, insurance premiums for some products we wanted to sell in New Zealand. Maybe, I don't know, just ask the uh, Nathans, I don't know. Maybe there was a purchase, I have no idea. But we had to develop some products and all I had was Australian data but I don't know if that offends all the New Zealands. How dare you use just Australian data? You need to get good New Zealand data. But New Zealand only had like four people living in the whole place. There just wasn't, there's not a lot of data there. And so we had this small sample size and the data really didn't correspond very well because the laws were different, et cetera. And all those things impact, you know, what you're analyzing. And I was, just, I was just dying for good data because we had to make large decisions. It was going to affect millions of dollars for a billion dollar company. I remember as well working through Korean data because I did. I support a lot of the international work that we did, and getting the data from Korea was fine. But the translation into English was pretty special. It wasn't exactly a uh, was it like I had some data said a fellow died while uh, pulling a chain uh, in a bathroom, and I thought I have no idea what that means. I don't know what it, what he died of. You know, did something fall you know on his head? You know, when he pulled on it, that's just. It doesn't sound like a good way to go. That's all I really knew, But I didn't know how to actually use that data. And we're always struggling to get good data. And it ended up for me becoming a good picture of life in terms of what we're trying to do. Samuel Butler's quote really is about life. Life is the art of drawing sufficient conclusions from insufficient premises, from things that don't give us all the information we'd really like to know. And so that's really what I'd like to address today, because increasingly we're living in a world that by design is giving us bad data, a constant stream of bad data on which we're expected to make decisions. And my wife and I have, have come up with this phrase that we use about the world around us, uh, that increasingly is not real in more ways than sometimes we give it credit for. Uh, we call it fake world that we are surrounded by fake world. And so many places where we look or places where we get things to listen to or things to read, it's not real. It's fake, but not fake necessarily in the obvious ways. And yet we're still expected by life uh, to take in data from the world around us and make decisions and advise our children and figure out which way to go and how to live our lives. And so that's what I'd really like to talk about today. How can we live in well, I'd like to establish that it is fake world for one thing. And actually hopefully communicate just how pervasive the falsehood around us truly is. And then discuss how do we go about in terms of dealing with that. And still processing data to make good decisions in a world that frankly is designed to deceive us. Uh, So the title of my split sermon today is Processing Data in Fake World. The most thrilling title a sermon has ever had. Uh, Processing Data in Fake World. Now you might wonder, is fake world one word or two? Pick your favorite. Uh, I made it one word, but it's a fake word. We made it up, so uh, I've written it as one word. So Processing Data in Fake World. Now, before we actually get to the world around us, let's talk about the world inside you and the world inside me, which is mainly this, right? It's the stuff in our noggin. It's our brain, your brain and my brain is designed to process information and data from the moment you were born. In fact, before you were born, when you were still in the womb, your brain was processing data. Uh, they know that the sounds and lights and experiences of the child in the womb do actually have some kind of impact afterwards. And then even after you're born, your, your brain remains very plastic. It is forming a lot of different connections and it's basing those on the input that it is receiving. The sights, the sounds. Uh, if you turn to Proverbs chapter 20, and it's a simple statement here, but I do want you to reflect on it because sometimes we don't, sometimes we don't act as good custodians of these things with this in mind. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20, and I'm going to read verse 12. Again, a simple statement, but every word of God is worth meditating on. It says in verse 12 of Proverbs 20, the hearing ear and the seeing eye. The eternal has made them both. And I know because I'm a science fan, I like to think of design and how God made these wondrous things. But it's not just the what he did. It's why he did. Why did he give us ears? He chose to do that. Why did he give us eyes? Because we need them. Because we're constantly taking in data so we can make decisions. Uh, Through our eyes, through our nose, through our taste, uh, through our skin, right? And our ears. You have a body that is designed to take in so much sensory input that just gets fed to your brain. So you can process all of that so you can learn what is good and what is bad and to avoid the bad and to seek the good. There's a good reason your nose is right above your mouth because sometimes you're about to take something in and go... Oh no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. There's something, there's something wrong there, right? Your nose is situated very well. You were designed to take in data. In fact, if you go into food sciences and look at some of the stuff that is added to foods, part of why that is done is to take things that really aren't necessarily nutritious, that wouldn't necessarily give us some sort of positive signal and to dress it up as if it would. How many things do we add in terms of flavorings and other things to take stuff that to a certain extent might actually be poisonous if you get too much of it and to make it seem pleasing to the body, to try to trick the senses uh, into simply taking in more and more. We're designed by God to take in data from the world around us and then to use that data. And yet so much of the data that we collect is absolutely Bad. It is bad data. It's data that is completely not accurate. Increasingly, the world is reflecting the design of an intelligent being working in it to make it bad data. If you turn to John chapter 8, there's some simple profound things said about this being, Satan, the devil, in this passage. John chapter 8 and verse 44. John eight and verse 44, Jesus Christ is about to speak of the devil and his condemnation of the leaders to whom he is speaking at the time. And in verse 44 of John chapter eight, he speaks of them and says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is best at lying. He's an incredible liar. He's got game, so to speak, uh, when it comes to lying and deceiving. And he is the ruler of this world, as we've emphasized so many times with so many scriptures. He is the God of this world, not a true God, but the false God that runs the world around us. And he is increasingly tweaking that world here and there to surround us with deeper and deeper layers, layers of deception. So let me go into some of the obvious things, but I'd like to move into some unobvious things as we examine the world around us. Let me start with entertainment, start with the world of entertainment. There's a reason I think that the devil is making sure we have easier and easier access to entertainment. Uh, If you had a trust fund and didn't have to worry about earning any money your entire life, you could literally be entertained 24 hours a day. If you were just taking medicine to keep you from sleeping and never run out of things to watch or music to listen to. Uh, this iPhone that I bought the other day and broke and ended up getting another one. Uh, it is an amazing entertainment machine. The images are brilliant. I, it's, it's addictive. I almost don't want to look at anything less than this because the images are so sharp and so crisp. Um, we're in a world that is saturated in entertainment, but so much of entertainment. Entertainment is packed with lies. Let me refer to a couple of old movies, and I'm going to linger on one more than the other. But these were the two movies that... In terms of reading about them, uh, kind of awakened me to this thought. So they're not modern movies. I'll leave it to exercise for the listener. Think of some more modern movies. But one is the movie, uh, The Bridges of Madison County. I didn't see it. It sounded like one of the, there was no explosions or aliens. I didn't see it. Uh, but I know it was a Clint Eastwood movie, Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep, where he essentially plays a photographer and she, a a married woman with a good husband and children. Uh, the husband and children end up going to like a state fair or something. And Clint Eastwood, the photographer rolls into town and essentially they have a brief adulterous relationship. Uh, that in the end she won't run off with him, even though she says she loves him so much. But if she stayed with him, then eventually it would settle into this kind of boring life and ruin the wonderful things she had with him. And, but it would also ruin the wonderful things she has with her, her steady husband, who's a good man. So she makes this decision and they part ways and it's a great romance. And her, their, her children later find their letters and, oh, it's amazing. What a, what a rich and wonderful life our mother had. That's garbage. That is filth. When God smells that it stinks because it is the opposite of reality. That movie is trying to put across an image that sometimes breaking one of God's laws is one of the best things you can do for your life. It leaves you a better person, a richer person, a better mother, a better woman. Um, that's horrible. And yet when you sit down in a theater, in fact, before I go into those details, let me focus on another one. Uh, later movie, 2005, Broke Back Mountain. Oh, I knew I would hear. I knew I'd hear some ugh. Alright, oh, totally agree. For those who don't, aren't familiar with the name, you might remember when there was a lot of talk several years ago uh, about the gay cowboy movie, uh, the homosexual cowboy movie. And I did not see that one either. Again, uh, even if there had been aliens and explosions, I was not gonna watch that one. However, one of the finest things I read about it was a review uh, in 2005 by David Kupelian, he's the guy that wrote uh, The Marketing of Evil, and he reviewed the movie. Uh, he was writing at the time for a website, World Net Daily. In fact, he was their managing editor. I didn't know that until recently. I always kind of feel a bond with my fellow managing editors. But anyway, he was managing editor of the website at the time, and he reviewed this movie. And it is worth reading some excerpts about it. I'll, I'll summarize part of the movie. Essentially, Both these men have families, these uh, supposedly homosexual cowboys, one played by Heath Ledger and one played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And their families are destroyed by the relationship they choose to have. And yet the movie, the theme is that they could never be together because society is terrible. Uh, and while they're apart, one of them ends up uh, dying. I think it's the uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal character. And so the movie ends with the families devastated and destroyed. Uh, but Heath Ledger's character alone in his little uh, uh, trailer or something, just kind of holding the other one's shirt. Uh, mourning and kind of slowly dancing with it, if you will. Uh, just so sad. But his review was spot on. I'm actually going to read a, quite a bit of it because I think it's worth the time. Uh, he comments, uh, the character played by Heath Ledger was named uh, Ennis. And it says, ultimately, Ennis ends up alone with nothing, living in a small secluded trailer, having lost both his family and his homosexual partner. He's comforted only by his most precious possession, Jack's shirt, which he pitifully embraces almost in a slow dance, his aching loneliness masterfully projected into the audience via the film's artistry. Yes, the talents of Hollywood's finest are brought together in a successful attempt at making us experience Ennis's suffering, supposedly inflicted by a homophobic society. And let me add, were this a real-life scenario, this person would be suffering. They'd be suffering loss and the rest. There was someone close to them, whether they should have been close in that way or not. There would have been real suffering. Uh, if Just because you're in a sinful state doesn't mean you're not actually experiencing suffering and sadness and the rest. And it was really communicated in the movie. He continues, Heath Ledger's performance is brilliant and devastating. We do indeed leave the theater feeling Ennis's pain. Mission accomplished, he says. But later in his review, he writes this. What is important to the movie makers is that the viewer be made to feel and feel and feel again as deeply as possible. The exquisite, painful loneliness and heartache of the homosexual cowboys denied their truest happiness because of an ignorant and homophobic society. Thus are the Judeo-Christian moral values that form the very foundation and substance of Western culture for the past three millennia all swept away on a delicious tide of manufactured emotion. And believe me, he says, skilled directors and actors can manufacture emotion by the truckload. It's what they do for a living. Co-star Jake Gillenhall realized the movie's power to transform audiences in Toronto, where according to Entertainment Magazine, quote, he was approached by festival goers proclaiming that their preconceptions had been shattered by the film's insistence on humanizing gay love. Uh, Gillenhall then speaks. Brokeback Mountain is that pure place. You take someone that's free of judgment. These guys were scared. They were, they were, uh, what they feared was not each other, but what was outside of each other. What was so sad, he continues, was that it didn't have to happen like that. But, said the article, Gillenhall jumped to his feet and exclaimed triumphantly, I mean, people's minds have been changed, he says. That's amazing. And then he continues with his review. He says, changed indeed. And that's the goal. Film is, by its very nature, highly propagandistic. That is, when you read a book, if you detect you're being lied to or manipulated, you can always stop reading. Close the book momentarily and say, wait just a minute. There's something wrong here. He says, you can't do that in a film. Now, I would add you can do that in a film. Mr. Weston's talked about your ability to get off your behind and start using your feet and go someplace else. Uh, But he talks about still the art of making movies. He says, in a film, you're bombarded with sound and images, all expertly crafted To give you selected information and to stimulate certain feelings. And you can't stop the barrage, not in a theater anyway. The visuals and sound and music and along with them, the underlying agenda of the filmmakers pursue you relentlessly, overwhelming your emotions and senses. And when you leave the theater, unless you're really objective to what you've experienced, you've been changed Even if just a little bit now, I would add why, why, even if just a little bit, one, they don't really care as long as you're still moving towards a goal, their goal, but why would it be? Why can't we just sit and completely dismiss it? Because our brains are designed to take in data. They're designed to watch a story, see the consequences of what happens to someone to empathize or sympathize with people that we should empathize or sympathize with, and then make decisions. And in this movie, it's always the hateful people that are keeping them from being together. We wouldn't want to be like those people. We see a fellow human being who's tortured in his soul only because of these other hateful people. We wouldn't want that to happen. And if you don't understand the power of music, I'm not going to give that whole uh, uh, Bible study again that I gave several years ago, but he actually recommends something in, in the article. Uh, you might be familiar with Mary Had a Little Lamb. The vast majority of our audience will be familiar with Mary Had a Little Lamb. And he says, if you can, maybe a Mr. McCullough would volunteer for you or, or someone playing the piano, play Mary Had a Little Lamb, the same song, but in a minor key instead of a major. It's sad. It's melancholy. It's the same song with simply one tweak. And with the movies and entertainment and television programs as well, you have people that earn millions of dollars because they are expert at that. They will open you up and play you like a fiddle. And when you buy a ticket, I bought a ticket for a movie recently. I did this. I realized I'm agreeing to let them open me up a bit and play my heartstrings and to tweak here and there. And I had to keep my guard on. I had to make sure I listened because I'd be taking in data. Your brain is designed to take in data. Uh, it really is an amazing review. It's, it's worth reading in detail. I almost want to kind of sit down and then read that and then talk about the verses that relate, but I do want to talk about some other examples as well. But keep in mind, movie makers, television uh, program creators, book authors, they all create their own worlds. They're all contributing to fake world because when you write the Bridges of Madison County, if you want it to be a rewarding choice for that woman's life and that man's life to have committed adultery, you write the conclusions. You create the rest of that woman's life. It's not real life. It was made by the author or the filmmaker. You know, if I were to drop my iPhone again, I'm not going to do it. Uh, But if I were to do it right now, probably not going to go good for the phone. I even got a little protective thing, but you know, if I dropped it, Probably gonna break if I just outright just dropped it for no good reason. But if it were a movie, these days I could let go of the phone and based on the filmmaker's desire, it could hover right there in the air. It could fly around the room and project an image like a hologram of Steve Jobs telling us all how amazing iPhones are. Because when you create a movie, you create the consequences of the choices. Because it's fake world. It's not real life. But you know what? If you don't pay your mortgage, You don't get to write the script that says you can't kick me out of my house. Real life doesn't allow us to do that. But the fake world around us is constantly trying to convince us of not the consequences of real life, but the consequences of the authors and filmmakers that were that were watching their movies and reading their books. Let me go through a few other examples, not just film and such. We talk about documentaries. Sometimes you feel safer watching a documentary. I grew up on documentaries that I I fell in love with uh, PBS's Nova at a young age, that science program still around, still love it. I don't get to watch it nearly as often, but I enjoyed that. I just drank that in. As a result, as a young man, I believed in evolution. I believed it because they sold it incredibly well. Uh, early on, they, they change these ideas all the time, but you know, where did teeth come from? Well, fish had scales in front of their mouths and eventually, you know, over time, you know, it made sense, you know, the, uh, you know, some die off, you know, certain mutations help move things along. And next thing you know, they're teeth. Now they probably have a different tooth theory at the time, but back when I was a kid, that was said a lot and it was portrayed so well. Nowadays they digitally animate everything and you'll sit down and watch a show and it can be convincing. Yeah, the the boys and I would sit down and watch some of these programs and then talk about, so where's the wrong assumption, right? What's going on uh, with this? So you had to be careful, even with documentaries, documentaries are assembled by people that have something to say, uh, and they can contribute to fake world magazine covers and posters. You know how much damage we're doing to young girls' minds and older ladies' minds as well. The whole gamut with the images we have on these covers. When these are not real people, yes, they're real people, but they're not real life. They might take, I'm just going to make up numbers. If anyone here is a photographer for a magazine like that, let me know. But they might take say a hundred photos of this woman and select absolutely the, after she's been made up and everything else she's done to make perfect, they'll select the best one. And then often it's off to the Photoshopping to make her look that much quote unquote better. In fact, some of you may have seen some of the websites that highlight Photoshop fails where they weren't thinking and they were in a rush and they make, give some woman some tiny waist smaller than your wrist. It's like, Oh no, we published that. And it kind of reveals the curtain about how much manipulation goes in to these images. And yet you're surrounded by them and they're teaching our women. This is what a woman is supposed to look like. And inevitably we're going to fall short. We're going to fall short. Uh, Men as well. I I remember when I first noticed this, I told my wife, I said, look at all the covers of these magazines. All the women on here clearly think I'm hot stuff. Look at their faces. You know, I can tell they want to cuddle with me, you know, and smooch me on the cheek. And uh, they don't. They were performing for a camera because a sexy look is more alluring than just them, you know, eating a pop tart or something. I said, the magazine industry is trying to convince me that I'm the most attractive man alive. And some of you might think, yeah, maybe, but I know better, right? I know better. I know I'm not, but that's not real. That's why when I, when I see sometimes our, our young ladies making Instagram photos or something, where they got the duck lips and things like that, I'm sorry if you got duck lip pictures, feel free and go delete them right after this. But it's don't please, I beg of you, don't try to emulate all those covers. It's a part of fake world. It's not real. so we'll get to social media here in just a little bit, but it's not real. We don't want to do their jobs for them. Advertising, oh boy, you know, don't get me started. Uh, If you have not read Dave Kupelian's uh, Marketing of Evil, it really is a great book. It's, while I think he may have an updated version, I'm not sure, but regardless, uh, it covers that so well. Uh, The boys and I used to go into Taco Bell, I'll fess up; we go into Taco Bell every once in a while. And we'd look at the posters and examine the images of the tacos. And we'd say, okay, how do you know that's not actually the way the taco actually looked? And you can look, we, we make a sport of it. You'll find the exact same piece of cheese in one taco that you find in the other taco. Uh, you can tell at the edges, the lettuce has been digitally placed on the layer. Uh, everything is just completely, absolutely fake. You know, think of the people that are used in ads. What if the world were populated with all the people you see in advertising it wouldn't look like this. It wouldn't look like us. Everyone would be more handsome. We'd all have more hair. Uh, it would be a completely different world because it's not the real world, but it's feeding you what the real world is supposed to be like. Uh, when we'd watch a television program, they're trying to sell cars. They're not giving me the facts on the cars. They're giving me a woman in a short dress getting into the car with a young playboy on the other side. And I would ask the boys, okay, what are they telling me this car will give me? What are they trying to sell? It's fake world, but it's data. And it does impact us. The last two years, the Super Bowl, they had 30 second commercials going for more than $5 million for that space. 30 seconds. Why would people be willing to pay that much for 30 seconds of your time? Because it works. Because it works. And they will increase the number of bags of Doritos that go out the door because of the commercial they've put together. Uh, Moving on, oh boy, so many things we're talking about. Let me just go ahead and go to social media. I just want to say that because social media has given us a world where we no longer have to ask the experts to create fake world for us. We're contributing to it. And I'm not trying to be against all this. I ended up uh, Instagramming a picture of my coffee this morning. Uh, A young man gave me a, a coffee mug during the Charlotte family weekend and my wife made me this... Wonderful little frou-frou coffee on it with a whipped cream and caramel and salt and it was delicious. And, uh, and I, and I wanted to take a picture of it, which gave me a chance to thank him and praise my wife because she made it for me. I can't make coffee. I'm very useless at home. So I, that was, so I did. I contributed to that. But you know what? Every morning I don't get coffee like that. Experts have found that social media is allowing us to create these pictures of our own lives that is depressing everybody else. Uh, there's a great article. I won't have time to read much from it, but I just wanted to to mention it. it's uh, from Time magazine. It was earlier this year, May 25th, 2017. The title was why Instagram is the worst social media for mental health. And it talks about uh, mainly five elements of social media, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat and, and Instagram and found that the only one that actually had certain positives going for it was a uh, YouTube. That YouTube actually did expose some people to healthier things, uh, which they found to be somewhat positive. But in general, all of them, including YouTube, received negative marks impacting us. sleep quality, bullying, body image, fear of missing out other things. But they pointed out that Instagram actually scored the least in terms of mental health, depression and anxiety. are the worst in terms of those things. Uh, They've done studies in this uh, one particular researcher pointed out that seeing friends constantly on holiday or enjoying nights out can make young people feel like they're missing out while others enjoy life. But the thing is, they didn't take the pictures of when their toilet was clogged and they couldn't. Now, here I, now some of you do, I know, but still that's not the pictures they take. You know, sometimes you take an Instagram picture and go, Ooh, no, we're not using that one. You take another one. Why? Because the other one didn't look as well. And I'm not saying that's bad. We don't have a moral obligation to post the ugliest picture of our lives somehow on Instagram. Uh, it's meant to be fun and sharing. And when we go on a trip, we tend to share the positive pictures, but they're showing people getting depressed because of social media. Instagram in particular, uh, one survey respondent wrote that Instagram easily makes girls and women feel as if their bodies aren't good enough as people add filters and edit their pictures in order for them to look perfect. We are building a fake world ourselves now. I've looked at some of y'all's lives and they're amazing the lives you live. They're fantastic. I wish I lived your life. But then I can look at my own stream and think also, oh, that's pretty good. But you know, I didn't post when I was down in the dumps. Well, here's me. You know, down in the dumps. Why? Why would I want to do that to y'all? I don't even do that to me. You know, I'm busy being down in the dumps. We have to learn to filter through all this. So what do we do? So what do we do? We are increasingly surrounded by a fake world. And yet we have an obligation. If you turn to Proverbs chapter four, we are given a dire warning. I say dire. It doesn't sound all that dire when you read it. But one of my sons, I think it's Michael. uh, This is one of his favorite passages for the lesson that it highlights. Proverbs chapter four and an obligation we have. And it's good to read other translations with this particular verse. I'm not going to read them now, but they all, they all say something similar, but I benefit from the different ways in which they say it. Proverbs chapter four and verse 23. Hang on. I got to use my new phone to get my clock back up. Proverbs chapter four and verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring, the issues of life. In other words, protect your heart, feed it the right things. It's not talking about your physical heart. It's talking about the core of who you are. Feed it the right things. Keep yourself healthy because as Jesus Christ said, it's out of the heart that wicked things come. We've got to feed it good data. We've got to feed it the right things. So what's the solution? The solution, how do we escape fake world? We can't leave the planet in a rocket ship. I wouldn't mind necessarily if Mars fascinates me. It um, doesn't look all that ha- habitable. How do we escape fake world? How can we escape its clutches from convincing us the world is something different? The Bible gives us the solution. Jesus Christ gives us a solution. Turn to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, and I believe the statement here is far more profound than I know I often give it credit for. John chapter 8 and verse 32. Jesus Christ says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth is the key. Good data. Somehow, focusing on the truth. Let me give you some suggestions here towards the end of the message. We have a little more than 10 minutes or so left. Let me give you some ideas. As you're taking in data, and you can't stop taking in data, that would be terrible. One day you will stop taking in data, and that's because you're awaiting the resurrection, you know, and then all of a sudden uh, everything is different. But while you're alive and while you're breathing, you will be taking in data. You cannot stop. You cannot stop. Even while you're sleeping you take in data. So what do we do? Let me give you just some advice. First, first piece of advice, consider the source of your data. Consider the source. When I go in to watch a movie, I keep in mind this director has a worldview. This director has a way he sees the world and that is going to impact what he says and how he puts things together and the consequences he creates for his characters. For some movies, that'll rule them out completely. But then even when I think a movie might be fine, it still causes me to filter and to examine. Now, am I guaranteed that something doesn't slip through the filter? No, I'm not. That's part of why we pray that God helps us to consider things rightly. If you turn to Hebrews chapter five concerning this point. Meanwhile, if you have your uh, actuarial standards and practices uh, manual, you can open that as well. Uh, As you turn to Hebrews chapter five, there's an actuarial standard of practice that we had in our profession is a number 23. And it concerned uh, data and it concerned your use of data. And it said, summarizing, it said, even if we ourselves are not the source of the data, we are responsible for getting a handle on its accuracy before we use it. Even if we ourselves in the actual profession are not actually responsible or the source of the data, we have a responsibility to get a handle on its accuracy because we start with bad data. The results very likely are as well are going to be bad unless chance somehow intervenes or perhaps God's mercy. Hebrews chapter five and verse 14, the apostle Paul says, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You have to be engaged. You have to learn to discern. You have to be in the fight. You have to be in the struggle. How do we do that? There's a lot of different ways. Test it against other data. When you hear a message that seems novel and different... Sometimes that excites us. That pulls people away from the church when they hear some idea they've never heard before. And that's amazing. When it should prompt them one to consider their source. The internet today is full of what I call wandering Levites. Wandering Levites just looking for a family to serve. You have an idol, I'd love to be your priest. Uh, we have them all over the internet. And just the fact that someone says something provocative should give them no credibility at all. The Apostle Paul encourages to remember those who have taught us the things we know. One of the things you do with new data is test it against old data. See if it's inconsistent. Maybe it's showing you something new and different. But if it disagrees with everything you've heard before, there's a good chance it doesn't. Consider the source. If it's a brand new source and is saying new things, it's, it's suspect. Uh, turn to First Thessalonians chapter 5, if you will. First Thessalonians. I should have named this one, Consider the Source and Test Your Data. It would be good to give it a longer name. Consider the Source and Test that Data. First Thessalonians and chapter 5. And some of you are probably guessing, I bet I know where he's going to go. If you think you know what verse I'm going to go to, write it down real quickly in your notes. You're probably right. And those of you who don't know, don't feel bad. All right, verse 29. I'm kidding, there's no 29, see? Uh, verse 21. Verse 21. We're told, test all things. Hold fast that which is good. Now that does not mean go out and, well, maybe it's good to get drunk on a Saturday night. Well, I'll go test. I guess I better go do it. That's not how we test things, right? We test by comparing To what we know and what we've been taught by talking with those wiser, those who have more experience, bending their ear, asking for honest feedback and opinion and insight based on that experience. We need to test and prove those things. And if it's good, we hold on to it. But if it's not, we cast it aside and it's gone and it shouldn't be a part of it. It shouldn't be a source of data for us. So consider the source and test that data. Ask hard questions of it. That's one of the things I I, I appreciate Mr. Weston saying frequently at headquarters is that we can't be thin-skinned. We have to be able to ask difficult questions uh, to see what we can do better or what we're not doing well. And be willing to ask of your data hard questions. Make it prove itself. Uh, Let's move on to a second idea. Second suggestion. Actively seek out good data. Actively seek out good data from trusted sources. Guess what source I recommend the most? God's word. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but Jesus Christ says so plainly in John 17, 17, your word is truth. I'm a science fan. Sometimes we dismiss so much science too easily, I feel. And at the same time, it doesn't compare to this. This is the truth. If three people disagree about something this says, then either all three people are wrong or just one of them is right. But this is always right. This is always right. Your word is truth. It's the only thing we can completely count on. God has given this to us as a gift. We're blessed to be in the living church of God, where I can say, at least from behind the scenes at the council of elders meetings, that when we start talking about doctrine or or some question has come up or some principle, people get out their Bibles. And that's what they talk about is what does this book say about that? Because this is the good data. This is the good data. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God encourages us. Go to the good data. Fill your mind with the good data so you can make good decisions. First Corinthians chapter 10. And the apostle Paul encourages us to go read the Old Testament. He didn't call it that at the time. Go read the Old Testament. I remember uh, growing up in uh, in my family. We didn't I'm glad we had some Bibles. They weren't being read when God started calling me I started reading them. Uh, but in my grandmother's house, a much more religious person, I'm so appreciative of the example my grandfather and grandmother set. But by the time I was really getting serious about the things they said, God was opening my mind in my teenage years. And I remember seeing my grandmother's Bible and it was just the New Testament and the Psalms. It's what I call a semi-Bible. It wasn't a Bible. It was part of the Bible. You couldn't even obey Paul's injunction here to the Corinthians with that Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll note in verse 6, Paul says, speaking of the examples in the past, he says, now these things, verse 6, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. God intended to fill this book with data so we'll make the right calls. He says later in verse 11, verse 11, he says, now all these things, speaking of the experiences of ancient Israel, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Fill your mind with good data. God has given us an amazing amount of data. If you're neglecting this, you're neglecting the best data in the world. There are times when I know in doing my actuarial work, when a rock solid, often expensive piece of a source of data would come and it was like gold because it'd been tried and tested and proven. And this was the good stuff. And you felt that much more confident about your analyses. God has given us the gold standard of data right here. And we should take advantage of it. In fact, if you're a young man and you're facing these things, I, let me turn to uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. God gives you specific advice of how to survive fake world if you're a young man. Psalm 119. And I am sympathetic. I mean, I'm, I'm 47 years old. I know that's old, right? Uh, and yeah, walking through the mall, Victoria's Secret shops everywhere giant posters of naked women. Let's be honest. Victoria has no secrets. Uh, There are no secrets that Victoria has to share. Uh, God tells you, young man, in Psalm 119, and oh, big book, I didn't get quite there. He says in verse nine, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. He says, go to the good stuff. Verse 11, he says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Good data doesn't guarantee good decisions, but bad data almost does guarantee bad ones. In fact, that's the last point that I will make is limit your exposure to bad data. We can't completely limit it, but we do want to try. This very same chapter, chapter 119 on this last point, limiting your exposure to bad data Says in verse 37, Turn away, he says to God, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. He asked God, Please help me not focus on bad data. The things that are worthless to me, the things in which there is no value. The opposite of uh, what he says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. The things that are good and those things that are noble on which we should focus our minds. He says, if there's nothing in that there, please turn my head, turn my eyes. Don't let me take that in because just like uh, David Kupelian said of Broback Mountain, it does make its mark. It does make its mark. So consider the source and test that data, seek good data and limit bad data. Let me be upfront. Data isn't everything. It's not. We have to use good judgment. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it. In fact, uh, one of the statements we used to talk about in actuarial, uh, which is common, we didn't make it up, but is that, uh, you know, you can get data to say anything if you torture it long enough. Uh, you can, no matter what you want it to say, you just keep cracking that whip over the numbers, and eventually they will confess, and they will say whatever it is you want them to say. There has to be a right heart with God. There has to be a desire to do the right thing. There has to be wisdom. But it really does all start with what we take in. And the fact is, we may be living in fake world now. If we'll take God's hand, let him point us in the right direction, and let him help us fill ourselves with good data, he'll take us into a very real world later. A much better world than this one.